1: Welcome to Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off-season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. Hey guys, I had the opportunity to sit down with Carrie Hirschberger. We get into Booner Moose, Hunter Gatherer, Wildland firefighting and just getting it done on the mountain. Enjoy the episode. So, we're on with Carrie Hirschberger. Carrie, thank you for sitting down with me. Welcome.
2: Hey, thanks kindly, Guy. I appreciate your time.
1: Absolutely. Uh, We're just going to pop right in as I usually do. Why don't you give us a little intro and some background and tell us about yourself?
2: All right. Well, I hail from the great state of Washington. And I've been fortunate enough to be a person that uh, c- considers themselves a lifetime hunter. Um, my early exposure was my parents and uh, celebrating when they came home with meat and being a participant or rather a, an observer and probably a little bit more of an obstruction to uh, meat cutting than anything in the garage. But I uh, was fortunate enough to kind of really have a grasp of where my food came from early on. And uh, passed my hunter's education course in a pink Mickey Mouse hat when I was uh, maybe about six years old or maybe just seven. I harvested my first deer at seven. And, uh, yeah, I just have never stopped from there. Just hit the ground running.
1: So you brought something up that I, I don't know if anybody's ever talked about it. So you, you grasped where your, your food was coming from. How was that? was that important to you at the time or, 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 how was that explained by your parents? Was it out of necessity? Cause we have a lot of people that say, Hey, it was just a way of life. That's how we had, that's how we had meat. That's how we got meat. Um, was there something else there for your parents? And well,
2: um, we, we certainly weren't of, uh, of great means growing up. Um, my mom works for the public or she's retired now, but she worked for the public school. And my dad is a horticulturist, a field man for the tree fruit industry. So we weren't uh, necessarily rolling in the money, uh, as as some people might say it. But uh, so it it was partially necessity for my family. I don't think that we re- really ever bought red meat. Uh, sometimes we bought chicken. Um, but. If it was red meat, it was, uh, it was most likely deer or elk, uh, my entire childhood through, through adulthood. I think the only time I ever had, uh, beef was when I was, uh, away at sporting events or we were traveling on the road and we'd stop, uh, at a fast food chain restaurant. But, uh, the majority of my meat came from, from wild game when I grew up.
1: Um, so that horticulture background that, uh, well, it sort of explains a little bit of something to me, but we'll get into, uh you have a gathering side as well, which I find extremely cool. Did that, (laughs) did that kind of stem from your father and that horticulture background?
2: Um, Well, perhaps a little bit. I think that I was really spoiled growing up because most people, when you go to the store and buy some of those uh, tree fruit and stone fruit is primarily what, uh, what he does. Um, And most people go to the store and they treasure one of those apples. You see uh trout blue chillan boxes or Washington apples. Um, they get shipped worldwide. There's some movies or TV shows that actually have those boxes that are pretty um pretty easily identifiable in the background. So it's definitely a product that gets shipped widely. And I was fortunate enough, um, we never really had to. Go and uh, find those boxes. They came home in cardboard boxes, handpicked out of the orchard from from my dad or from his orchardist. So we grew up, and my mom canned uh, peaches, pears, dried nectarines. We were we were very fortunate in in what we were able to to have locally um, offered to us. So it was a pretty spoiled childhood in a sense that some people may not consider it spoiled, but I I certainly did just having such a strong connection to where the food came from.
1: This is going to be good. Um, (laughs) it's a whole bounce back. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit about your hunting and outdoor life and how you, well, you already explained your exposure there, but why don't you take us in a little bit deeper and
2: Well, as we already kind of talked about, uh I got my exposure at a young age, um but I was fortunate enough to harvest my first deer at age uh at age seven and hit the ground running from there um While I had kind of a lifetime of experience or exposure, that wasn't necessarily the case for my parents. They learned to hunt together in their mid thirties, so by the time my sister and I came around, they had already gone through some of the trials and tribulations uh new hunters uh kind of have, have to experience by the time they were able to guide my sister and I. So my first year hunting, um, carrying a, a weapon, I was fortunate enough, my parents uh, put us in for antlerless tags all all through my youth. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have my family provide uh, meals on the table from age seven on. Um, I'll never forget sitting with my dad Over in northeastern Washington, um, I had a an antlerless doe whitetail tag over there, and um, when I finally had the opportunity to shoot, I looked at him. I said, "Well, where where do you want me to shoot it?" Because in in a lot of the classes, the hunters education classes, they give you so many options of what lethal shots are. And so he told me because this one in particular was kind was looking right at us, and he said, "Well, shoot it, shoot it in the neck." So I I dropped it and I can remember just this this wave of emotions running through me, being really excited, being really sad too, um, which is a whole nother topic um, that we could potentially get into, but um but just really proud to help help provide for my family to be able to then go through those steps that I had seen on the backside with my parents in cutting the meat and actually feeling like I even had a little bit more of a participation in. Um, in that process. So it was pretty neat. And from that point forward, I was, I was hooked And uh, deer hunting is what my parents primarily brought my sister and I up on elk camping or elk hunting was kind of reserved for them. That was their thing. So um, I've learned different big game in my, um, in my adulthood. And I'd say uh, some of those are pretty new and, and fun, exciting exposures, but deer, especially mule deer as I've grown up has kind of become one of my biggest passions. And, um, when I started out with my dad, he was much more inclined to the notion that if you've harvested an animal and you can't see the road from where you've harvested it, you've made a severe miscalculation. And
0: uh, (laughs) Smart man. I've
2: (laughs) I've definitely gone the complete opposite direction of that now. And, um, the majority of the hunting that I do is way in the back country the goal isn't necessarily to find the biggest deer it's always a pleasure when you find some of those that get your heart pounding but my main goal is just to connect with nature and get out there away from the pressure of uh, some of the other people so I concentrate on more rugged remote terrain than my dad maybe did and that we did in my youth
1: so <laughs> that's awesome um Yeah. Smart man there. Uh, As much as, as we enjoy that backcountry experience, it is, it is some work after. What, uh, was there a reason that they started hunting um, later in life? I mean, did they ever explain it? Was it something that they were just intrigued with or wanted to get into outside of necessity for, you know, meat on the table? A lot of people, you know, say that after the fact, but I, for me, hunting is something that just calls to a certain, a certain person.
2: Both my parents grew up in, in outdoors families. They, they backpacked, they camped and traveled across the country. They came from pretty, um, passionate families to, to share the time outdoors. They certainly both had, had fished in their youth, but my mother was born in Denver and my father Portland. So growing up in that metropolitan area and families that also did, uh, they just hadn't really ever had that exposure. And, when when they both they met in college, and when they uh, graduated from college and were looking for a position, um, my dad's line of work t- took him pretty much to remote rural por- portions of Washington. And his, his first job was up um, north central Washington in the little um, Okanagan Valley, North of Okanagan Valley. And I think that when their exposure came with community that, that was associated with that. And the big draw was definitely the, the meat, but that was the first time they had anybody and had that exposure. Somebody would actually teach more or where they even thought that it was a reality for to be able to do that successfully.
1: So you started bringing up something um, about getting away and uh, you have some, I mean, your posts are freaking awesome. Oh, um, well, thanks. There's, there's the one post where you talk about, you know, Wilter grow um when you're going through those adversities so you kind of brought that up at least in my head knowing knowing and reading so many of the posts um let's just go ahead and jump right into that and and how that experience humbles you it makes you grow uh refocus things like that
2: gosh it is uh it is my main purpose in life i've i found to I uh, challenge myself, um, and, and push the, every boundary that I thought that I potentially, had. the moment that you think physical quit is, is generally not when your physical quit is. And I've been fortunate enough to test that not only in my hunting career, but in my career as a wildland firefighter. Um, I've, I've, I found, especially in that community working around so many amazing can do people that, uh, the normal population has, a moment where they think they think their mental quit is, and they think that's where their body quit is, and there's a huge gap in between your mental quit and your physical quit. And I think, as a wildland firefighter, especially, a lot of people learn to close that gap, and I'm no exception to that um, i I started fighting fire as a way to pay my way through college, and right when I graduated from college, I had enough Um, qualifications to be able to become a helicopter repeller and they get to repel out of helicopters into really remote wilderness fires or remote sections of fires where there's no place to land and um, I'd I'd always describe to people that job in that uh, particular position your main goal is to fight the fires that nobody hears about because you keep them small enough that they'd never make the news and with that job, you get dropped off in the middle of nowhere with gear, and you're expected with a map and potentially a GPS to be able to navigate back out after the fire. And my some of my heaviest packouts on those fires were more than I weighed. I had one packout that was 137 pounds. And there are many times during some of those moments where uh, I thought that I couldn't. And um, you learn to to kind of break those barriers for yourself. And, um, I kind of, those experiences like th- that one in the wildland fire community is what really drives me when I get into the hunting environment, especially with the people that I have uh, started to develop my uh, hunting relationships with my really good friend, Jeff, that, uh, you may see on in- Instagram. I, I post a lot about him. His, his uh, Instagram is blubber hunter, uh, between he and my, uh, boyfriend, uh, a better better Derek on there also, um, they really pushed me to be the best person that I possibly can be and, and push me into positions that I didn't think that I could possibly um, succeed through. And so that uh, concept of or Grow to me is um, you don't really get to test yourself in those environments unless you put yourself in those environments. And it's a similar... Line of thinking that you don't get to see incredible things you, unless you put yourself in incredible places. And um, I'm just really fortunate. To, uh, I jokingly call them Team Awesome because they're a wide variety of people that end up uh, coming with me on some of these adventures. But uh, the makeup of, of Team Awesome really helps to support that kind of mission, which is to just get out there and, and really challenge ourselves.
1: But you're a girl. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> right i mean that wildland firefighting is no joke uh you're repelling out of helicopters hunting the back country is no joke um but when you and i'm trying to i'm trying to stay safe on how i say stuff when you look at it overall right i women hunters um it's growing, but it's kind of the back seat, right? It's not, it's not something that's yes. been prevalent. It's not, especially the backcountry hunting. Um, yes, but you're hunting. It's true. Right? I, it just,
2: and guy, you never have to be safe with me. Uh, as again, I'm a wildland firefighter. I've heard it all. <laughs> <laughs> They're not known for having necessarily a politically correct, uh, um, verbiage, I guess, but, but you're right. I, I am a female and there aren't very many of us. And I mean, if, if I look left or right, when I'm out there in the field, whether it's fighting fire or truly doing some of those really spectacular hunts that I do, um, it is a pretty limited number of, of women that are doing that and kind of trying to push those boundaries. And and in fact, my sister gets a little bit anxious. She's, uh, she watches meat eater pretty religiously. And, um, even just the, the the wordage in that about there's nothing greater than sitting around the campfire with your boys or nothing's greater than these man's trips and um, it is it is rare to to find somebody that you can go and do that with and I don't think that it's because there aren't females that can I'm I'm certain of it that they can a lot of it is just relating to the the exposure and the opportunity um, I know plenty of women in fire um, that supersede and work harder than, um, than many of our male counterparts. And the same, the same goes for, for backcountry hunting. And, um, I think, I think you'll see more of it as time goes on. Um, and people get the opportunity to do that. And I'm really grateful, um, for some of the interest in the insurgence of interest of women in hunting, in the hunting community right now, because it's, it's essential to be able to have us protect this uh, heritage and tradition into the future. And um, whether, whether they want to go into the back country on their own two feet or a horse or sit in a tree stand someplace, whether they're the type of person that um, wants to go out there with a, a full face of makeup on or if they've never worn makeup in their life um, I'm I'm a sister and I support it I I think that it's imperative for us to continue to support that as we continue on
1: uh, hell yeah <laughs> hell yeah <laughs> I, I mean really for me right the mountain the mountain is a leveler right you talk about diversity in the hunting community um, things like that I mean just just the mountain doesn't care. Right. I mean, it, like you said earlier, it is just a matter of how far you are willing to go past that, that mental quit. Right. Cause physically yeah. you can do it. Um, yeah, that's hell. Yeah. Is what I'm saying to that one. I don't even know if I need to say any more, ask you anymore on that one. That's badass. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, I love it.
2: it's a, it's a challenging, um, it's a challenging thing I, like I said, I look left and right when I'm hunting. And most often I'm hunting with Derek, who's my boyfriend or Jeff, uh, my, my lifetime hunting partner at this point, he's, he's my best pal. Um, but it's not to say that I wouldn't welcome a female that wanted to do that, but in that aspect too, it's, um, there, there are people that can and there. There are those that can't, there are, some men that I wouldn't invite to try to do the hunts that we do simply because I don't want to set them up to fail or have an experience that, um, that pushes them away from that. That says, you know, this just isn't for me. I'd much rather take them in something that I think that they could find success in. And as some of your other podcasts you've talked about, success isn't necessarily even notching a tag. It's just making sure that that experience is fulfilling.
1: And then for me, like when I look at it, right. And we talk about, you know, growing the audience, Um, losing that tradition, it's, and I don't know how this is going to sound. I don't think I give a shit, Um, but (laughs) I find it hugely important to involve women. I think that that branches it out to the whole family a lot more than just dad hunting, Um, because now you're immediately – Involving the kids, right? If you're if you're sharing yes. that time as a family, the the kids now they you can't go just have that man trip, right? You might have that man trip, but you know if mom's out there, or if the woman of the house is out there, you have to involve everyone. It opens that door a lot earlier.
2: Yes, it does, and it it adds a different element to it. Um, I was fortunate enough that, like I said, I I grew up with a sister who also hunted through high school. She, um, she's moved toward dual citizens, her and I. And so she lives up in Canada now and she kind of has gone away from hunting for a bit. She still has interest. She just hasn't necessarily had the opportunity again, but it was always really, really enjoyable to me looking back on it to, to have had time with my dad or my mom hunting, having, having both of that time and um getting both of their takes on hunting, um, as much as I hated it when I was younger because my mom would hike my pants off. I'd much rather hunt with my dad because he was more of the sit and hang out. Um, but it was really great to get their both their perspectives on it. and um, my mom's the type of person when you if you walked up to her in the woods and she had an animal down, uh, she's the person that's you know that has a hand on it that's thanking it for its sacrifice and Um, She like in terms of honoring and respecting the animal and respecting the meat and having a little bit of that emotional side or tie to it, um, it was really important and impactful for me to have have that um, aspect of it, as well as everything that my dad and the knowledge that he was able to pass along to me. So it was really nice to have that duality. And I uh, hope for nothing more than people to have more of that exposure like I was lucky enough to have.
1: Yeah. That's, I mean, rounding that out in that respect is, is huge. Um, when you say it that way, that's, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, walking into the woods, like, you know, like that as an adult and understanding both sides of that duality, uh, damn, what a complete experience.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have that. And like I said, I I really hope that we can continue to, to grow, um, the interest, especially, um, the, the female side, uh, of, of hunting sp- specifically for that, because I'm so grateful for, for having that.
1: Uh, okay. Well, uh, we, I don't know if we tangent it off, but, uh, 2018 season, how did that, uh, how did that look for you? Oh,
2: 2018 was a blast. It, it always is. It's, um, um, started it off in early October. My parents and my buddy Jeff and I um, hunt elk in uh, Washington with our muzzleloaders, and we weren't fortunate enough to draw an antlerless elk tag. Washington's pretty limited in the in the elk opportunities we have here. If you hunt the east side of the Cascades, um, if you don't get drawn for an antlerless or a branch antler bull tag. Um, Most units are specific to true spike. So we're hunting the unicorns of the woods, as I call them. And, uh, it was, it was a really fun season. It was a little bit of a late rut. So we were still getting a lot of bugling and my specific strategy that I have developed is to just chase bugles because you know that those herd bulls have cows with them and with cows are their
3: little brothers.
2: So, um, I was fortunate enough to get in on some really, really amazing red activity, almost to the point where it was enchanting for me. And I lost a couple of opportunities at Spikes because I had two mid 300 to, to high 300 bulls that were pushing each other across the, the lodgepole floor less than 40 yards from me Whoa. and missed the opportunity at the spike that was 30 yards back over my shoulder. And uh, Just watching. Yeah. And taking the camera out, trying to get some pictures, not realizing that my, uh, um, volume on my camera for some reason had gotten turned on. So, um, ruining the magic a little bit, but, uh, it was pretty, that moment to me was actually pretty hilarious because I had cows and calves and these big bulls right in front of me, pretty much surrounding me and my camera went off and they all kind of stopped. And a few cows looked at me from both directions and I liken it to um, a person that crashed a house party, and everybody is looking <laughs> at the weirdo that's at the house party. Like, I didn't invite him. Did you, did you invite him? Uh, but nobody nobody sounded the alarm because they all assumed that I was somebody else's house guest. So um, I still got some really great time with him, which was fun. But my my dad, who's just the most amazing shot with a muzzleloader of anybody that I know, because in Washington it's open sights. Um, and open breach and uh he missed a spike and he's normally just a, a dead eye uh I missed a spike and my buddy Jeff missed a spike all in the same day um and that was we we punched our opportunities on that we were fortunate enough to have him and fortunate enough to have clean misses on him but um it's still really fun to get out there and after it and uh Yeah, no, no elk in the freezer for us, but we can't say it was due to lack of opportunities. Uh, Some good learning lessons for me. Um, That spike for me was over, I was sitting watching those bulls and it was over my shoulder. And I tried to kind of twist and get into a position where I could shoot because I was sitting in these small uh, lodge bull fur seed sap stand. And uh, I tried to just turn my body and be able to shoot rather than trying to adjust uh, my position because it was kind of uphill for me. And uh, I didn't quite have my cheek seated on the, uh, the side of the rifle or like I should have. And uh, so lucky for the spike and for me, because um, I'd rather a, a clean miss than, than anything yeah. else, I just absolutely n- nailed a snag. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was a great time. And then, uh, we go up into the back country in Washington. Um, my, um, my boyfriend, Derek and, and Jeff and I, and I didn't even carry a rifle because I was not playing on shooting. I really wanted that hunt to be about uh, Derek. My boyfriend has, uh, he's been a person that I've introduced to hunting initially when we started the first that he came out, he had um, he was the sure he just wanted to win and so those two seasons have only been been a tag with, really wanted to concentrate on him um, and Jeff because he was incredibly generous and ended up purchasing me and tag for Ida this year uh, I've never had opportunity to hunt brantler Bulls so. I really want those two to be successful in Washington. And we were fortunate to watch four nice bucks in the high country bed down together and put an all-day stock on them to get into position. And right when we got into position, Jeff handed me his rifle and said that he couldn't send any other notion other than to trying to obtain what he called power couple status. Um... So really wanted me I had a tag but I just had planned on harvesting anything and we whisper back and forth argued about that he's the one that needs to be shooting and he said well if you get one down you hand the rifle and go from there and somehow he talked into it which I pretty pretty bad about but talk about a great friend and a friend that supports you um we ended up uh we ended up taking two bucks out of out of the group I got a really full point and uh they're uh, really nice by five and no opportunity for Jeff to pull the trigger but that was plenty of working seven miles back in back country for the three three of us and a buddy that had some pretty stoved up fit. we were to uh, to get up on the mountains much all right yeah the uh the rest of that hunt, I guess the highlight of that hunt for me was uh, I had seen in one of uh, Stephen Ranella's uh, episodes, he used the call fat to wrap around a little piece of meat um, and cook it. And so while we were taking care of my animal, we took, uh, I had never really figured out where this magical call fat was. We used the gut, gutless method to bone everything out so we're not really in the gut cavity and Aside from just uh, pulling out the heart and the liver and uh, making sure we get those tender lines out, and so my my hand uh, slid across that call fat that um, for those that don't know what that is, it's a really small it's also called lace fat. It's this really delicate uh, lace lacy fat uh, that kind of uh, protects the gut cavity and uh, so I was really excited when I actually found where that was, and we we built a fire right on the mountain, and we had a small packet of uh, seasoning. And we threw a little bit of that on a chunk of the backstrap, a slab, and uh, found a really flat rock, and just kept uh, kept that rock super super heated, and wrapped that call fat around it, and that was the best steak that I've ever had. And I don't think it's just because we were doing that under just a stunning, stunningly beautiful night of stars. Uh, the the meat was was the best that I've ever had, so if you have any interest or uh or any inclination to use some unique or interesting part of the animals that call fat is one that I would certainly recommend to to anybody that hasn't tried it out and wants to be a little adventurous
1: yeah i'm uh I'm curious about that and hearing you say it right i mean that uh is I sound like an old ass uh, all the rage. <laughs> I mean what <with> Renella's <laughs> Ranella's cookbook, right? I mean, there's some phenomenal recipes in there. Um, but yeah, trying oh, yes. to call fat this year is uh definitely on the uh on the list.
2: I would recommend it. It was it was probably the highlight of my season, certainly. It it was amazing because it's, um especially with the superheated rock that we had, it was just enough uh just enough protection for the meat that it was super, super juicy perfect in the in the center but it created a nice uh, crisp or rind on the outside and it was you couldn't have asked for better in a five-star restaurant in some fancy downtown city it was uh and yet we we uh made it on a dirty rock in the middle of the wilderness so i i recommend it
1: so uh you said that's kind of your trigger tripper
2: yeah, the the those uh, animals that we harvest oh, in the high sorry. country were yeah. were mule deer in Washington. Um in Idaho, we we always do a backcountry trip in Idaho too and um and this year we didn't we didn't draw the the area that we normally are fortunate enough to get into. And so we kind of split we split seasons to be able to do a a general season um in in the same unit but it, kind of in a different area. Um, and then my elk tag that I had is in the, the same unit, but the later area that we're normally hunting. And, uh, we, uh, I, my friend Jeff had a, a deer tag there and the first day that we were able to hunt, we got him into a really beautiful animal in the, in the country there. And that's always a challenge and really interesting, a unique challenge, something that don't necessarily find to be quite the challenge in Washington. Um, the predators there in, in Idaho, if you left an animal or part of an animal in Idaho, at least area we're in, it's pretty interesting. I'm certain that the wolves trained to gunshots at this point and all you may never ever see them. I'm certain they see you because by the time you make it back to your animal the next day and, and we bone it out and take this all, all, all that night. Right. So we're not ever losing any meat, but if you go back to the area where your your animal was, the only thing that's left is the uh, rumen lining of the stomach. Everything's gone, a little bit of hair. So they know right where those animals are, and they take advantage of, uh, of another hunter doing the work for them, that's for sure.
1: So, I'm sorry, I was kind of scrolling here. I remember seeing... Uh some ram horns on your instagram at some point and i'm not sure if that was a deadhead that you had found or is that something that uh
2: yes that was in idaho and that was uh unfortunately the the only the only school i brought home from idaho last year i didn't end up filling my my elk tag i was really really close um but did find that big horn sheep in in a jaw. It was a cougar kill. You could see the the marks on its muzzle mm-hmm. um, once I got the skull cleaned off. And Idaho, it's awesome. I feel very fortunate because they have a policy where if you take those to original office, they'll uh, put the pin in the horns for you and you can actually keep them.
1: Wow.
0: So... That- so
2: that may or may not be my only bighorn sheep I ever had.
0: My <laughs> dad
2: was joking with me. He said, well, now you don't have to worry about getting one. I still re- really would like to um, to have the meat off of one. So I will certainly still be putting in for tags, but it was a pretty special treat, especially that was, I think, in they estimated an eight and a half year old, which in that area, in that rugged terrain, that's pretty old. So that was a pretty pretty stellar find.
1: And his mass, I'm looking at the picture here, his mass kind of dwarfs your arm.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's he's a beauty. Um, the the game wardens that we run into every year in that area, um, I showed them the, the horns too, and they said that that was probably one of the bigger ones that they'd ever seen come out of that area. So he's he was the king of the mountain, but every king, I guess, eventually gets trumped in that kind of harsh terrain. But we were it would that area is so much fun. We i through multiple different uh blizzard storms, I had spotted uh these this group of elk that were kind of on the top of the mountain, kind of the we talk about really pushing your your limits. Um I spotted them, I was about three thousand feet. They were at about sixty, four hundred feet. And um if I was gonna get to them, I needed to pretty much drop my pack and only take the essentials um because the route that I had to take to them was going to take me all day <laughs> and uh so I I beat feet and in between every single whiteout blizzard that happened I'd stop and make sure they were still roughly in the same area and I made an all-day stock up this mountain on these animals in the last blizzard that rolled through um I was maybe 150 yards from them um, if I had just been able to peek over this little mountain, I would have had them bedded right below me when I last was able to see them. And this last whiteout blizzard just swirled my scent right down in there right before I had the opportunity to shot. And uh, when the storm cleared, you couldn't even tell an elk had ever existed on that mountain. <laughs> so it was it was a really fun hunt and it was a really humbling hunt. i am been very fortunate, especially, not so much for elk, but especially for deer to usually come home with meat, so it's nice once in a while to let the let nature in the mountains uh humble you a little bit
1: frequent for me so <laughs> how did uh how did the rest of team awesome fare and all that
2: uh really great um so my buddy jeff uh he had that deer tag and we were able to 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 get him on that animal. And, uh, Derek just went as a, uh, um, as support because he's the most awesome boyfriend ever. And, uh, just really wanted to see me be successful in that, um, this season. So I, it was pretty amazing to have, it's, it is really amazing to have those people in my life. I was maybe six or seven miles away from those guys when I spotted those elk And we have in-reaches so we can uh, communicate with each other. And I said, hey, I found these elk. I'm going to go after them. And uh, they both, uh, they were at our spike camp, which, like I said, was really far away. We were were planning on moving it that day. So they said, well, why don't you go look for these animals that we think we have a good chance at knowing where they are. And we'll pack up spike camp and, and move it. And so when they got that message, they they beat feet back down to our base camp and, um, got enough setup for what we jokingly call ultra spike, which is a really small pup tent and just the basic essentials to have to overnight if we have to in pretty remote rugged terrain. And they humped up the hill to pretty much where I spotted those animals from and, and watched, watched me try to make that big stock on those animals. And they were fully prepared to to freeze their tushes off hanging out with me overnight on an elk in wolf country. So I'm pretty fortunate to have those types of dedicated hunting partners.
1: (laughs) I'd say so. So I realize it wasn't last year, but you have, uh, you have a moose that, uh, was pretty substantial.
2: I do. I was really, really fortunate. Um, my, my dad started putting me in for a moose before I probably even knew what a moose was. And, uh, 20 years after he started putting me in, I was fortunate enough to, to draw that once in a lifetime tag. And it was the same year that we drew antlerless elk tags, which also doesn't come very super often, obviously more often than the once in a lifetime moose does. But I went up scouting for moose and the plan my dad had told me because he had drawn his previous to me. And he said, well, just make sure you tape your trigger finger to your palm, Uh, go up there and do some scouting, but we want to go hunt, hunt elk. You have the whole month or two months to hunt moose. So just don't, don't shoot one to shoot one, but go up and get familiar. And he had kind of talked to a whole bunch of the biologists and, Identified some spots on the map that he thought would be good hot spots. And I pointed to a very separate spot on the map and said, I think I'm going to go here. He looked at me kind of funny. And um, one of my work trips had taken me up to a remote section of uh, the unit that I was in. And I remembered a moose running down the middle of the road for quite some time in front of me there. So I thought that that might be a good place to start. And sure enough, um, my first morning of scouting, I Found this little swamper in pond, and there was this really beautiful shirus moose trying to push a calf off of a cow down in this swamp. And I had one of two choices at that moment I could shoot it with my muzzleloader, or I could shoot it with my camera. And my parents weren't there, and nobody was there to kind of experience that with me. And um, I made the decision to shoot it with my camera, not knowing if I was ever going to catch up to it again. And so I drove out to cell phone service and I sent some pictures to my dad and he texted me back and said, that's a huge moose, Carrie. What were you thinking? You should probably (laughs) shoot that, but your mom and I are still packing for elk camp. So let us know if you get it and we'll come help you. And I was kind of a little bit dejected and I have a really hard time. And I think a lot of people do. Um, I want or I need are really not in my vocabulary. And what I should have said is, hey, I want you here. You know, can we, can we sacrifice a few days of elk hunting to have you guys up here to, to do this with me? But I couldn't figure out a way to do that. So I texted some photos of that moose to my buddy Jeff. And he works over at NOAA as a marine mammal scientist in Seattle. And he texted me back immediately and said, well, how's a guy supposed to concentrate with things like that existing in the woods? You say the word and I'm there. And I called him and I said, "You recognize that this is a seven hour drive for you right now from where you're at." And uh, he's a pretty animated guy. And he said, "Yep, I already packed in the emergency carry killed a moose kit. Like, you go after that baby, whether I'm there or not. You you shoot it. Uh, But I'm I'm coming." So um, half heartedly, the rest of the day, I kind of scouted some other areas, knowing that I was going to have a buddy to try to chase that big one with the next day and. We were lucky enough Uh the, the next morning there was a, a gentleman that was driving up the road just as we were about ready to get into the truck and drive down a little bit further to, to where that, that moose was. And I noticed he was also in camo. My heart sank a little bit, so I kind of waved, waved him and said, hey, you know, can I be so rude as to ask you what you're hunting for today? And the guy kind of smiled said, I'm not going to lie, I'm road hunting for deer. I said, okay, well, great. Can we have that next road to the left? I have one of the 10 moose tags in this area, and there's a moose down there I'm really interested in. And he, he excitedly said, yes, of course. And we get out and start hiking down that road, and you hear snap, crackle, and pop, and my heart's in my throat, and it immediately sinks to my stomach when I realize the snap, crackle, and pop is a truck driving straight at us he gave us the first left-hand turn but he didn't know it was a circle road so he drove all the way through um and he was so embarrassed when he saw us that he put it in reverse and started driving backwards through the whole area um we weren't sure we were ever going to catch up with that animal um we waited for about 30 minutes and there was no of stillness and there was no cider cider sound of a moose anywhere in there so I looked at my buddy, Jeff, and said, I think I want to try calling. And if anybody's ever tried to make some moose noises, you can understand it kind of sounds absurd, especially if you're not exposed to it fairly frequently. Um, so we had been practicing in the car the last few days. and
1: You're setting um, yourself up right now.
2: Yeah. And uh, so uh, we get up on this little flat and right above the swamp and my back is pressed up next to this, uh, this tree. And I, I, give a, I give it my best moose call. And immediately when I finish with the last little, oh, uh, you can hear the swamp erupt. The, the bulls, the bull calling, it's crashing through the swamp. I look at my buddy and I, we're both wide-eyed because we don't that it even worked. And uh, I said, I don't think that I'm gonna be able to call him up out of the swamp, so we need to get to where we can see it. And we make it about 30 yards before it's pretty obvious this moose is coming and it's coming hot. So we find the old tree that's left for us at this point between us and the edge of the cut bank that's coming up. And you just see the beautiful antlers sway up the hill and it gets to the top and, and pauses and um I, my friend Jeff has videoed the whole thing. So it's pretty amazing. I'm fortunate enough that I can relive a little bit of this, but there's one little clearing in all of these little seed saplings that, that's on the fly. And so my, my muzzle is tuned for that because he's coming right toward me. and he gets into that clearing and I'm about ready to grunt at him to get him to, to stop. And I realize I'm, Squeezing the trigger at the same time, putting a little bit of pressure on it while I'm doing that, and I realized that in my statement, I forgot to take the safety off, so I take my finger off the trigger, I kind of give myself a big sigh, uh, take the safety off, and realize that I'm not going to try to rush the shot in little clearing. There's another one that was about 50 Fifty yards in front of him, and he's just doing this perfect circumnavigation of the the slope below us. And so I adjust as he's in the the seed saplings and train on that next spot. And sure enough, he goes right into it. And I grunted at him. And beautiful crisp morning air. um He disappears in the muzzle or smoke. And as it starts to clear, I'm still calling while I'm trying to reload. And uh, he steps out of the smoke and. Uh, he looks like a steam engine because um, I ended up uh, double lunging him um, but those things are so huge They're even massive. with my muzzle loader. it didn't the, the bullet didn't end up going out the other side so all of the pressure from his lungs and that steam and the smoke associated with that bullet is just pouring out his his side with every takes a, a little bit of a turn and I consider another odd on him but um, it don't know how I ended up being so fortunate because I hear about people that have to put a lot of rounds in them, but he um he quiet pretty pretty quickly he uh, exploded right in front of us and he was um, yeah, it was pretty exciting. I'm not really one to, curse, but it uh makes me laugh looking back at that uh, that video footage because I'm just looking at my friend Jeff King um, yeah cursing and being holy, <laughs> <laughs> holy crap that's my moose <laughs> that's
1: a big moose i mean that's I a him. big animal anyway right i mean but that's an impressive moose
2: yeah yeah he, uh, he made and crock all time time that i sh- that i harvested him um if i were to enter him in the washington's books he was he was i heard that there's a couple potentially that now he was the number one muzzle loader the state so really cool animal 100 pounds of meat uh more more than i even know what to do with he was he is awesome still gets enjoyment out of you looking at him but super great meat i wish, wish it wasn't a once in a lifetime tag uh i wish that i could do that every year but it's definitely goal now i think at this point um to try to experience hunting um species of is one of my my goals so
1: that's awesome yeah I had to I saw that and I was like ah we got to talk about that moose that's a
2: (laughs) yeah that's a (laughs) booner that will be forever ingrained we're keeping my our fingers crossed um the Washington uh draw season I think closed or is closed. I have my app what whatever but uh um my mom is the only one left out of the family that had drawn her once-in-a-lifetime tag. So we're, uh, we're in a bated breath for the opportunity that potentially she has to get to experience that.
1: Everybody with one. Well, I'm you know, you'll probably only have the only booner there, but uh, you'll have bragging rights forever.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah, my dad was, the first thing he said when he, because he and my mom ended up calling uh, them and they came. We'd block and tackle to the road. We were fortunate enough. Um, I'd, I had a 250 rope and it 240 feet of it, but he was, he'd, was kind enough to walk just in steps to make it so we could block tackle him into the road. And so by the time we had gotten everything set up and um, made a nice little, figured out how to roll him on to um, some because I didn't, I wanted to be able to it's important to me actually an animal specialist is that you try to get every part of that animal used. And so, um, I didn't want to ruin the ape by dragging. Him. So we ended up creating a lead for him, um, to on while he was tackled to the road and they got just as we got him whole out the road. So it's pretty neat.
1: Awesome. So yeah, I don't know if we could beat a, a boon or moose. I'm going to, I think I'm going to use that for the episode cover. Right. So everybody can see that. I mean, that thing is just, it's huge. And just a beautiful animal too. So I said you were setting yourself, yeah. I, I told you you were setting yourself up. So you're going to have to moose call for me. <laughs> uh, I, uh,
2: I listened to a YouTube episode uh, before I went out there. Um, there was this gentleman that um, said like main outdoors. Uh, must know essential moose calls so we pretty much listened to that on repeat and tried to fi- figure out like jeff helped me he helped me a lot refine the tone because initially i think i was just a little bit too uh low on the tone so pairing those youtube videos and the practice in the car did us straight to be able to uh, get that animal in there, but I haven't listened to that video in a while, so I don't know if my tone would be right if we uh, if we try those calls. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I won't put you on the spot too much, but I I can't imagine I can't imagine never doing it watching the watching the videos going out there firing it off and then like you said the swamp erupted. I mean that like you know holy crap that just worked.
2: Yeah, it was incredible, and I. Uh, while we may not do a preview on the show, I will throw it out there. If any listeners in Washington end up drawing a moose tag and they want someone to call for them, I would love to tag along. So there you go. I'll, I'll refresh the vocals on that if uh, if necessary.
1: You might get called, right? I mean, having a booner, that says a lot.
2: You're
1: going to have a
0: lot <laughs> yeah, of best friends. Yeah, <laughs> even,
2: uh, she, uh, I'm, I'm all about it giving everybody their best possible experience in the outdoors is something that I'm pretty passionate about. And sometimes it ends up, uh, it ends up stressing me out a little bit because every, everybody wants something different from their experience in the outdoors, right? Some people truly are just in it for, for the experience and the adventure. Some people really want to just spend the time with their loved ones or their friends. Uh, for other people it is notching the tag or the measurements of the horns um so it just to me sometimes managing all of those hopes and expectations and especially in a big group setting where we that i don't if i do i've kind of been the trip lead on that for the last seven eight years now and the staples my friend Jeff is the person that's with me the most on, on that, um, just because Derek uh Derek's new to the dean in the last four or five years. But he he Jeff's been there every single year at this point. But the other people that come in and come out try to manage their expectations and try to make make it so they have an enjoyable experience sometimes up being stressed for me. Um but I try to remember that, uh, that there are, that they are adults too, and they can help manage their own expectations.
3: <laughs>
1: well, I think too, right. Is, is, you know, how powerful it is full circle and they probably don't have as high of an expectation as you do. Um, but I find when you take someone else out, yeah, it's, I think we're hypersensitive to everything to make sure that, you know, they're getting the most they can, whether it's a a day trip or a four day trip, or I think we kind of set ourselves up for that. Cause I, I've taken people out and, and I mean, you know, had a guy glass a deer, his first, he glassed his first doe and fawn and just absolutely freaked out. And it was kind of, kind of a leveler for me. Um, Cause I was like, oh, I gotta get him on deer. I gotta get him on deer. And then I saw his reaction, just just sitting behind glass, and I was like, ah, okay, maybe I don't. So I think we we kind of <laughs> take that to heart, right? Because we want everyone to to get that that whole experience out of it.
2: All right, yeah. So managing other people's expectations, it it completely turns the tables for me a little bit because uh, not only am I kind of a part of social media in the sense of Instagram but before Instagram was even something that I even knew existed um, I've reached out and been a part of some some other online communities in in the form of Hunting Washington which is a a forum for people that hunt in Washington and I go on there every year and I provide write-ups and 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 with photos some uh, with pretty good descriptions of of my hunts and, and the experiences that I've had on there and I've become fairly well-known on on there. And I've met a lot of people from there. So it's just a really great way to connect to people. And I ended up having the opportunity, it's pretty rare during the summer that I end up getting days off uh, as a wildland firefighter, but I knew I had three days uh, coming to me that nobody was going to be able to call me or... or I just wasn't available to go on calls. And so I reached out to that community and said, hey, look, I have some days off. I know an area where we could potentially see a lot of bears. What I would like to do is offer up um, for any of the females that are on this site, I'd like to offer up my services uh, to try to get you on a bear, if that's something that anybody has. And it's not, uh, I'm I'm not looking I'm looking specifically to take, uh, females out that are interested in going out and doing that. And I had a gal from, uh, South Central Washington take me up on that. And my parents being the wonderful, uh, support network that, that they are because their house was a little bit closer to where I was planning on hunting. Um, this, this person on there was, was not a, this gal was not a person that we had ever met before, but they, because they trusted me and my instincts, um, opened up their home to her. So we had dinner with my, uh, parents. Uh, she got in late that night and early the next morning, we went out and, uh, tried to, uh, try to get her on a bear. Well, she had kind of told me initially that, she wasn't sure she just, she wanted to even harvest a bear at that point. She just wanted to go out and kind of pick my brain and go out in the woods with me. And, uh, it ended up being good that she didn't necessarily want to harvest a bear because, uh, that season ended up being pretty dry in the area that I normally find bears. You no, know, uh, the berry source just wasn't there for them that year. And so we ended up seeing a couple of deer and just having this really awesome day hike and. Um, she, she was getting pretty fatigued going up the hill in a couple of spots. And I just looked at her and I said, well, you know, let's just go to that tree. Let's just go to that tree. And, um, she recounted afterwards that, you know, once you do that enough, you're almost up the hill. And so she was pretty excited at just the area that we got to see and the boundaries she pushed for herself in that too. Um, and that was like I said, I initially put a lot of pressure on myself, even though she said she didn't want to shoot a bear to at least put her in the opportunity that she, that she could potentially have that. But um, the value that she took away from that and the appreciation she had for that was um, more than I had kind of really initially pictured with not having, you know, you can't make the animals cooperate, but not being able to 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 put her in some of those opportunities was, uh, was initially distressing for me. But the, The enjoyment that we both ended up getting out of it, I think was pretty, pretty special. And um, she's a gal that I hope to go out with and have some more of those adventures with into the future.
1: That community aspect of it, right? I mean, in my opinion, and I say it a lot and I focus on it a lot on the podcast is the hunting community. As far as I'm concerned, it's some of the finest people you'll ever meet um and there's anomalies and you know exceptions to the rule um in yes. everything but I, I don't i don't know and i'm i'm biased as hell right but i don't know that there's a better group of people in anything that i've ever done
2: i would agree with you it's it's a community of exceptional generosity uh in terms of just sharing time experience equipment, whatever it may be, Um, we, as a community, you look at the passion that most, most of the community, you can't say all because that's not fair in any circumstance, but what most of the community has in terms of a passion for keeping those wild places uh, clean and pristine for the investment that they put into wildlife, for the investment that they put into other people in and outside of the community, the, the welcome open arms to be able to share their world is pretty, pretty incredible. I've, I've always found uh, that to be pretty, uh, pretty telling and pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, I was going to say amazing. So, um, hunter gatherer, right? I mean, you, uh, and okay, so I'm qualified a little bit. I know you from social media, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yes. But it's pretty cool. I, you know, I, I, asparagus, right. That's, I was talking to my wife about it. She's like, Oh, who are you recording with today? And I was telling her Carrie, blah, blah, blah. You know? And I'm like, my wife makes the best freaking asparagus. Um, so I was showing her everything. Right. And, uh, the morels. And so how did that, how did that, kind of spawn, um, with, with a gathering side of that. I mean, you're, and it's not just the asparagus and the morels, right. You're all over the place with it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, just any excuse to get outdoors has been something that has always been interesting to me. Um, and the asparagus, we were, we were lucky enough in, in terms of my family to be exposed to it. When my parents moved to, um, to Chelan, um, their neighbor, w- their neighbor said, come take a ride with me, kid. I'm going to go show you something. Um, and, uh, my, my mom went with a gal that lived next door to us and she took my mom out to the, um, to the areas where, where asparagus grows, which is pretty much all the, the flats along the Columbia river. And some people that have orchards will, um, will be pretty easy easy to attest that uh, along along the um orchard corridors that it it proliferates and grows too but so the asparagus was something that we always there was always a treat to go get at a pretty young age and that's something that's pretty accessible to um to taking uh young family members with a pretty low um attention spans right little, little kids like I was at, at that point when I got introduced to it uh, so it, the the gather instinct obviously was pre- introduced to me at a at a pretty young age, and as I grow older and meet new friends or have new experiences, I mean the the Morels kind of came about to me specific to learning learning and being attuned as a a wildland firefighter. We're pretty fortunate in the sense that. Uh, um, we not only have the the natural morels that exist around here but we do have pretty large fire scars and in, in first and second year um fire scars they generally uh, proliferate pretty nicely so we we end up getting to to pick quite frequently which like i said um or i initially said we're lucky to have that obviously the fire scars i wish that they weren't quite what they are across the landscape this this day and age but um the silver lining, I suppose, is the morals that comes out of them. But anytime I can be introduced to something else that's new to me that is edible or usable from the landscape, I'm pretty, pretty excited to to learn about it and share it with others.
1: Yeah, because there's a going back to your post, you have a post there about the asparagus, and I believe someone commented something like, I've been Uh, You know, basically outdoors in Washington, my entire life. Where, where in the heck are you finding wild asparagus?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those things. I I always jokingly say, uh, you don't know until you know. And there's a lot of things that we just aren't exposed to. And I'm I'm sure if you uh, if you pulled people that live in in this state, only one in ten would probably even know that they're the asparagus grows right out their back door. Right. So it's, um, it's it is just the opportunity to have the exposure to that resource is something that, um, is a barrier of entry for a lot of people. And that can be, that can be a stra- extrapolated across all of what we've been talking about today. Yeah, right. Absolutely Hunting and, yep. and any kind of, a gathering.
1: Yeah. I thought it was, uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, only thing I know about in, southern california um is your occasional berry bush and dandelions
2: <laughs> yeah we're pretty fortunate up here with uh there's huckleberries there's oval leaf blueberries there's um i posted a small little video clip of it the other day but uh, in the springtime kind of right before morels and after after shed hunting's done, while I'm walking around trying to find turkeys, there's these really beautiful five-petaled uh, white flowers with the pink variegation on them, and they're called spring beauties, and they're edible all the way down to the root. So I'm walking around these beautiful fields of flowers, just picking one every once in a while and grazing.
3: I've
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh, I don't even know how to put it. that's pretty neat. A pretty neat skill. I don't know if it's a skill or what it is, but I, yeah, I find it pretty intriguing.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely on the, I'm, I'm certain there are people that, uh, can utilize the landscape a lot better than, than I potentially could. I'm pretty reserved, uh, to what I know won't, won't make me ill. Um, I have a, a friend, uh, somebody that I, somebody that's in on and off again member of uh, Team Awesome. Um, I met him while I was fighting fire in um central Oregon. And uh I every year when we go to Idaho, because some people may not know each other, I send out a, an email to to Team Awesome to in, with little introductions about who's going with us and little little bios of each of them. And um the gentleman from uh central Oregon, one of the things that I generally put about him is that he's in avid outdoorsman and survivalist and he's probably tried um, more plants than any of us ever dares because he he'll just grab something off the ground and put it in between his lip and his teeth and see if it makes his mouth numb and if it doesn't then maybe he starts chewing on it and um, so that's kind of how he's learned what you can and can't eat in the woods (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can't can't say that I'm quite as bold as him. I stick to the things that I've uh that I've been um instructed or, or told about um and that I've verified through a little bit of uh my own research or education. But it's it is a fun skill set to have and we're fortunate enough to live in a place where there's a decent amount of things that are are edible. Right.
1: Yeah, that <laughs> makes me wanna look into what's here, you know. And where I'm going um I don't know I don't know that I would be able to put it you know between my lips and my teeth and take that risk though
2: <laughs> No I'm I'm not that bold either but boy if you are making that trip to to Oregon you're going right through some of those big uh, fire scars in southwest Oregon you might have to find yourself a nice little bunch of merils to to cook up and power up on
1: Yeah that'd be uh that'd be pretty cool we do have a couple of hikes planned uh next week when we're up there so that'd be pretty cool. cool um where are we i don't even know where at. um oh kvc so this is a collective episode so why don't you give us a little bit about uh kong valley collective and why you are a part of that and chose to be a part of that and accepted to be a part of that et cetera. Et cetera.
2: yeah so i I found a uh, Kong Valley Collective through social media kind of when they were starting to kick off their um their social presence I suppose and um as I as I say to a lot of people um we from the dawn of time humans have been uh clans people it doesn't matter who you are you find your niche of your little niche of humans people that you kind of that are Kindred spirits, I guess, that believe you what you believe. Or, you know, in today's today's society, that could be the jersey that you wear of whatever sports team you have, or you know, the college that you went to, or one city versus the city that's right next door, one state that's right next to another. There's just layers of clans that we have, um, and uh, KVC is a clan that. I'm proud to stand behind uh, because I stand behind their message. And I see it as not trying to alter a person's particular nature, but really more of an inspiring each of us to kind of examine how we can be better and elevate ourselves. Um, And that's, you know, to be a better hunter, to. Have better ethics to be a better partner, whatever that is. I feel like uh, KVC is trying to elevate the message of kind of some self-examination, and not in like a not in a, a negative "you're not good enough" way. It's hey, we could all be better. We can all do better together in a very supportive network. And as that relates to hunting, I think especially in today's day and age where it's under attack so frequently um the more that we can do to showcase the the ethics and the proud nature and the um as we talked about how generous the hunting community is um the better we can do to so- showcase all of those messages the better chance we have at preserving the hunting heritage uh that we have and perpetuate that into the future. I think if we don't do something now, I mean, we are living in a time where social media is just so vast that somebody's able to make a split second decision off of a photo of what's right and wrong. And uh, the better we are at inspiring other people in the hunting community to elevate their game and elevate their message and be really intentional about what they do, I think the better chance we have at gaining the support of the large portion of the population that really isn't de- decided on whether hunting's good or bad, bad right?
1: That, uh, so that actually kind of spawned a thought, with, and I'm not sure what part of it. Um, but one of the things with, with KVC um, is the fact that we're able to see someone else's view, right? Um mm-hmm. you can take, you know, three different people with three different views and it actually helps kind of broaden your horizon so to speak um and get you looking at things a little bit different. I think that's one of the one of the standouts and I'm not sure if I've ever even uh, maybe I have talked about that, but I don't I'm not quite sure why that thought came up when you were saying it, but uh but that diversity and I have talked about the diversity in, you know, not just The guys that are running it but uh you know the folks that are on board and and behind that whole mission there
2: yes and it's interesting because like i said we're we're all clans people we find we find our little we find people that are kindred spirits to us and that doesn't mean that you have to come from the same space right you have people from all over the country you have people from very diverse different backgrounds you have men, women, people that are more inclined to fishing, some people that are inclined to hunting, all sorts of different weapon types. It it doesn't matter. um, That part of it doesn't matter. The diversity is actually what I consider a a strength of theirs because um, it provides you the ability um, to connect with a huge audience and potentially inspire a part of them that is just laying dormant some something that they just haven't, hasn't even been kind of awoken in them yet. So the more diverse population you have that has that same message, um, the more like, the more you have an ability to kind of reach that broader audience. And I think that's definitely a huge strength that KVC has.
1: Yeah. Hope, uh, hope to see that uh, continue to grow and people hear what you just said. That was probably one of the best KVC Responses since I've been doing these episodes, and I think you're number 15 or something like that. I think that was one of the best answers as far as I'm concerned. So, oh, um, thanks, yeah, that was awesome. Um, so what does uh conservation mean to you? What, uh, there's a lot of talk of it, right? And and I do the conservation quick, um, to get the oh dang, it just started pouring here. I don't know if you could hear that. It is dumping out there
2: Wow oh, oh boy uh, so for conservation for me a huge portion of a huge portion of what I think conservation means today is reaching out and educating um, and that that really means uh, encouraging involvement as well as ownership I think it's really easy for people to kind of feel that disconnect from the natural world nowadays. I mean, whether it means like, shoot, I'm talking to you right now, sitting in my nice little apartment. It's been raining off and on again all day here too. Um, but I haven't been out in the elements. I'm, I'm not getting wet, right? It's really easy to be in your climate controlled box and kind of forget about what, um, what's going on around you that way. Um, and so for me, a lot of what I try to do in terms of, Conservation is just keeping it uh, keeping it clean as I can. Um, I I heard your other episodes about some of the mylar balloons out there. I too have pulled hundreds of mylar balloons off of um, wilderness peaks all the way to um, I when I'm not uh, fighting fire. I'm actually down in your state of California sometimes uh, working for No with my buddy Jeff. Uh, off of the Channel Islands, it's amazing the garbage that you find in even some of the most pristine l- landscapes. I've found mylar balloons all the way out there. Um, so doing your part to try to have that ownership and realizing that if you're not doing it, you can't expect somebody else to. So packing it up, keeping it clean. Um, my parents and I, my parents are still, um, their uh, Washington Master Hunter Program uh, qualified so they do a whole bunch of, uh, booths to do outreach for kids, um, in terms of wildlife. And they have banded geese and put flashers on fences to keep the quail from running into them and put flagging on fences near I-5 corridors so that elk don't run across in the winter and get nuked by cars. Um, all of those sorts of things. And I, um, I do some of those projects with them still. I'm no longer master hunter qualified because uh, the the time commitment is challenging for me, especially with my summer position, but it's also just being a steward of the land. And one of the ways that I consider my participation in that is uh, through my work as a wildland firefighter and especially in the spring and fall um, participating in the planning and implementation of the prescribed fire management to try to help get some of our forests back to a more uh, resilient and healthy stand, so just trying to do whatever it is with that's within your skill set or your capability, and whether that's going along the road and hanging flagging, like I said, for the elk to not be there, or whether it's um, doing some of these more in-depth scientific projects, just finding something that's within your niche or your capability to. Make sure that we protect and preserve it, because if we're not preserving it, then there is the potential that we lose it.
1: And that's it. so, again, you, you've you done stellar in answering something. Um, I'm more and more impressed, but to think and we don't and at least for me, you don't think that something as small as putting flashers out or flagging. Um, I don't know if most folks would consider that conservation efforts. Um, It is, but, you know, again, the reason that I do that is to hear these different insights and, and, you know, things that people are doing to open eyes. And that's, yeah, that's awesome.
2: Yeah, it doesn't, that's, that's the tough thing is I think there are some really amazing, big efforts that potentially you could make. But I think my message to a lot of people is that it doesn't necessarily take that um, if, if your time commitment is that you can go out and pull a star thistle or, or some kind of plant that's an invasive that is taking place of a native plant that's much better browse for the animals that are in your area you know working working with your local uh, um, state fish and wildlife or uh, through uh, through the mule deer Foundation Rocky Mountain elk Foundation Um any of those groups, the back uh, country hunters and anglers, there's a ton of different projects that you can participate in. And, um, I totally understand that everybody has different commitments that they can make in terms of time, money, um, effort. You know, we all have limited amounts of those, right? There's a, there's not, it's, it's not an infinite amount of any of those. And so anything that you can do, I think, uh, improves it. And so not minimizing some of those efforts that people have, even if they're, um, even if they're considered, you know, minute to others. So I really encourage people to get out and, and do whatever they can within, within their capabilities.
1: Heck yeah. Cause all those, I mean, if you take, you know, you start factoring in time and people, you know, I don't have time, blah, blah, blah. but those, if you have a hundred of those minute efforts, or a thousand of those minute efforts, ten of those minute efforts, they add up, right? I mean, that's potential big impact.
2: Absolutely, and those projects on the on the big scale, they need small scale implementations. You can have a project and an endpoint that you're hoping to get, but if you don't have the workforce to help you get there, um, those things don't get done. So there's there's no part that's too small when it comes to and you know, a conservation or an improvement project. And um, I'll high five anybody, whether it's hanging a single flag or whether it's completing a huge project that, you know, they they all have an impact.
1: So how does your 2019 season, what is that looking like? And I know it's tag season, so not everybody is able to answer that uh, at the moment.
2: Yeah, we'll we'll have to see. I'm definitely, I have my fingers crossed. Uh, we talked earlier about my once-in-a-lifetime moose in Washington, and I joke a little bit, but uh, I drew my once-in-a-lifetime moose in Washington before I've ever drawn a quality bull or buck tag in the state. And I've been pretty darn spoiled with the bucks that I get in general season, so I can't complain really. Um, but I would love the opportunity to be able to uh, hunt some of the rut activity for for either of those. So uh, we'll see. But if I don't get drawn for those, we always have such a splendid time up in the backcountry of Washington and Idaho in general seasons that I it definitely feeds my soul. So I'm looking forward to another fun season with really great people. And uh, we'll see. I think I might have talked to my mom into coming back into the backcountry of Idaho with us again. She. She was there for uh, her her 60th birthday. She said she wanted to do do one more trip and say that she was in the backcountry of Idaho with her daughter at age 60. And uh, we'll see. She she thinks she seems to think that's a that's the quitting point, but she still hikes circles around me. So I'm hoping to talk her back into it.
1: <laughs> so that that kind of brings up another topic right so she's a baby boomer baby boomers are fading right we hear that constantly um, yes. and, and I want to say and and I'm paraphrasing this off of memory um, age 70 is when most folks stop buying their hunting license um, and I want to say it was like 2043 or 2042 they're saying at that point that's when all baby boomers will hit 70 years old which is is odd to me um seems like that's a ways off I'm not sure how accurate that is but with that being said I mean keeping her out there longer keeps that number up um and then just having that experience right I I don't know that I hope to be doing it at 70 years old but backcountry you know in your 60s that's freaking awesome (laughs) yeah that's amazing
2: I don't know if it's a If it's genetics or stubbornness, I'm hoping for genetics because I'm, I selfishly want that for myself, but I know it's probably a combination for my mom. She's just, she's just an awesome woman. And I'm, uh, when she listens to this episode, I'm sorry, mom, for saying your age if you didn't want me to say that, but, uh, I'm just, I'm just tickled and impressed and so proud. We've had so many great moments together. She's hauled a deer out with me. We just went on a single hunt by ourselves and we're, headlamps coming back with heavy packs with my buck on her backs and to the harvest moon. And I looked at her and grinned and said, men, we don't need no stinking men.
1: Oh, <laughs> um, There you go.
2: But, but yeah, I'm just, I'm tickled. I'm so proud of her. And I hope that I get to, to do that with her for a lot longer. And the only time that I think the only reason that she'd quit is if uh, she just mentally decides that she can't. Cause like I said, she's still, still hike circles around me. So I sure hope that I have another 10 to 15 years with her doing some of those really fun adventures. Yeah, that that's awesome.
1: Uh, you just made me grin ear to ear because I, I don't know what your mom looks like, but I can picture you looking back at her doing that. That's, uh, yeah, <laughs> I get all, yeah. I get a little uh, sentimental with that stuff. I think it's amazing, but I'm a sucker. For, <laughs> I'm a sucker for hunting, the hunting community, the folks that, you know, are involved and out there and sharing it. It's just, it's unreal. Unreal.
2: It is. It's pretty cool. It's a special community and I'm grateful to be part of it and grateful to be able to chat with you about it. This is just such a pleasure.
1: So uh, anything, Oh, you know what? No, I'm not going to go there. So while I'm firefighting and gear, they, I almost and maybe it's me making a correlation there, right, but you you depend on gear. I'm a kind of a gear freak um so I kind of think you might have a little insight <laughs> is where I'm going with it um does that help you scrutinize the gear or, or when you when you take what you do in your career into the woods with you
2: you know i um I have to say. I am so much more spoiled in my hunting gear than I am with my firefighting gear. Um, because, because you're, uh, you're kind of, uh, the, when you're, when you're working in that line of work, you definitely have a budget, especially, I mean, the repel program that I came from, you're outfitting 30 people to go, to go do that line of work. And so, um, there is a measure of cost savings that are associated with that that you know when when you're doing your personal personal trips your your budget may be a little bit bigger especially if you're as as passionate about it as as I am so i'd say that my backcountry setup is is like uh <laughs> is a lot nicer than what i what i end up having with a um with the wildland fire community. It's, it's lighter, it's, um, it's more adaptable. Um, the layers that I have are, are a lot better because of course when you're fighting wildfire, you're kind of restricted to what has been approved through the um, fire protection agency. So you can only wear stuff, wear very specific clothing that has been fire rated and approved through through the industry. So, um, by the time those approvals end up getting made, um, technology has advanced 10, 10, 10 to 20, 20 fold. Right. So,
1: but does it's it, a, I'm sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. Oh no, go ahead. Does it lend itself to your gear choices though? I guess is where I was going with that.
2: I, I compare and contrast a, a lot. Um, I, I'd say that, uh, there, are, there are tidbits, um, of, of things that I, that I learned from my time in the, the backcountry, um, fighting fire versus backcountry hunting. Um, but it's just such a different environment. It's, it's summer. Um, so to show you how low complex your, your gear is, or to kind of showcase that a little bit, um, I'm, when I repelled, I was dropped in with, uh, you get dropped in with at least another partner. So it's always two people at least. So if you get two people on a fire, you usually have um, a five gallon thing of water that gets dropped down to you and a firebox. And the firebox has a tarp, a space blanket, food for 36 hours, um, and a couple of tools. So it's pretty basic Um, and you can fit other comfort items in your flight suit or or th- or things like that but generally everything that you bring in you have to pack out right so then you end up uh hauling out even even more stuff so when i was on my repel fires uh i'd sleep in a sleeping bag on the firebox that we got dropped to us we'd cut that up with a knife and that was what you slept on we had no thermarest no pads anything like that so yeah
1: i don't know it's why it's a lot more not a lot more rugged.
2: Yeah, it's a lot more rugged than than I end up uh especially with my with my friend Jeff uh in in our hunting. He definitely continues to elevate all of our our techie stuff with him. Every single year he has a new gadget that he thinks is gonna be the best gadget. And some years it's a slam dunk and other years Why did I it, buy it'll that? make you laugh. Yeah, we've we've had every single kind of um you know, elements charger that you could possibly imagine. Um, he bought the little one that made the fire and was supposed to charge the one that boiled water. He's now bought one that we're going to try to put in the stream and have the uh, the little uh, turbine for the stream. I, I
1: saw that. Uh, I've seen that one.
2: We'll give you a review on it after this, uh, this season in Idaho, see how it actually worked for us where I'm skeptical just because at this point we've gone through so many, but, uh, in terms of trial and error, we've definitely, we've tried a lot of things um, on, on our own versus the, wh- what we have available when I'm, when I'm fighting fire.
1: <laughs> there you go. I'm going to put it out there. Team awesome for, uh, for a uh, gear test. Cause they have the one, I saw the turbine where it's uh, you could put it in, you know, like a stream or um, use it for wind. Is it, is it the same one?
2: I think it's that one that he ended up getting and the plan is, um, to put it in a, a Creek that's near our base camp and just continue to ro- rotate some of our, um, our battery banks off of that. Cause we are, we are pretty gear he- heavy and I continue to have to try to, um, to lighten us again. <laughs> I, I think more than anything, to both Derek and Jeff, I tell them ounces lead to pounds. Um, cause, uh, Jeff wants more techie things and more gear and Derek wants more food. Um, they're both ori- oriented very differently. Um, so trying to find that nice balance of what is realistic, especially in the environment that we're hunting. Um, cause we bring, we bring solar panels. We have, I have a, one of the little goal zero solar panels that folds out and between that and a few battery banks. We we're 10 to 14 days in the wilderness in Idaho and we are charging, um, cell phones and our, um, and our in reaches to be able to communicate with each other and some camera batteries and and some things like that.
1: Cool. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know why I was making that correlation between the, uh, the firefighting and the gear, but it was something that I was like, oh, there has to be something there, yes. but I didn't.
2: Gosh, I wish there was. When I started repelling, we were still sewing our own packout bags. Oh, wow. And I'll tell you what they were like, we, we forged the aluminum stays ourselves. And there are some packs that you got that were pretty darn uncomfortable depending on how well those stays were actually, uh, created.
1: Um, so anything in closing, anything you want to get out there uh any messages, et cetera, et cetera?
2: uh, no, I think that this was a pretty um pretty all inclusive uh chat. I really appreciate your time, guy. This has been a ton of fun. I know I was uh a little nervous to start this out, but you're so easy to talk to. Thank and-
1: you. I told you so much fun podcast and chill <laughs>
2: podcast and chill. <laughs>
1: I don't know if you saw that when you posted that story, I, uh, I reposted it. We're just chilling over here. No, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty fun, right? I mean, we're ultimately, we're just talking about hunting. We're getting your story. Um, it, it doesn't get any easier than that.
2: Yeah. I really appreciate you doing this. It's so much fun to get some of these different elements of, um, It's fun to listen to you. I've, I've listened to a multitude of yours now too. And I just, I like the format. I like, um, I like what you're doing and I know that you end up doing a, a lot of these and I appreciate um, not only your willingness to take it on, but obviously your family's patience in you uh, taking on all of these projects too. So. That wave,
1: that wavers a little bit here and there.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's,
1: it's awesome. It is awesome. I, I absolutely fell in love with it. So I appreciate, uh, I appreciate that support. It's yeah, that makes me feel good.
2: Yeah, well, I, I'm glad that you decided to do this. It's, uh, it's definitely something that I think suits you it's really really cool so look forward to many more of these
1: yeah me too i appreciate it well i uh greatly appreciate your time it was awesome talking to you i'm going to start looking at to, uh into the edible plants i have here in uh california and see what i can come up with and yeah hopefully i don't uh, swell up or <laughs> keel over from anaphylactic shock or something but yeah that uh, intrigues the heck out of me Um,
2: nice well if i end up on any fires down there this summer i'll uh i'll let you know especially if i find anything edible in your in your forest
1: oh absolutely reach out yeah if you're in southern california reach out wonderful all right we'll do all right carrie thank you very much you have a great one
2: you too bye
1: You can catch up with Carrie on Instagram at SheHuntsWashington. Also check out our blog at hunting-washington.com. And to learn more about Kong Valley Collective, head over to westerncontours.com on the partners page. Thank you for listening. Follow and tag us on Instagram at Western Contours. Jump on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down.